This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. It was just another day at a preschool where the children were happily playing, but it would be a phone call from a parent which would alter the course of the preschool's future and that of the students and staff. This is Apple for the Teacher, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Anna Thomas. Today's episode is called Satanic Panic. The children were enrolled at a preschool. What happened? In the year 1983, a preschool operated in a suburb of Los Angeles called Manhattan Beach. It was called the McMartin Preschool after its founder, Virginia McMartin. It had operated for almost 30 years, and Virginia's daughter, Peggy, eventually took over the family business. Over that time, the school had attained a good reputation, and there was a long waiting list for children to attend the school. Virginia and her daughter, Peggy, were well respected, and the children also came from respected families. Peggy's own son, Ray, eventually came to work at the school, and it was expected that he would be the heir to the family business. It was one afternoon after school in 1983 when Peggy wanted to speak to her son, Ray. She had received a call from one of the parents who told her that a detective at the police department had rung many of the parents and told them that they had received a call from another parent alleging that Ray had molested her child. The police asked the parents the following. I want you to ask your children if Ray Bucky touched your child in the butt or in the vagina. After the parent told her this, Peggy asked Ray, Did anything happen that I should know about? Is there anything you haven't told me about? He replied, Annette grabbed me in the crotch once, through my pants. I grabbed her hand and took it away, and told her you don't do that. So... What brought on this allegation of molestation against Ray? A few months earlier, a lady by the name of Judy Johnson had enrolled her son at the preschool. He was two and a half years old. Within a month or two, she took him to a doctor as he had been complaining of his bottom hurting. But the doctor could not diagnose the boy with anything. At a later time, the boy complained about more pain on his bottom so his mother took him to another doctor. But again, there was nothing found to explain the pain. About a month later, the boy had more pain, and she found blood inside his nappy. She took him to a different doctor, and he was diagnosed as having been sodomized. The doctor reported what he found to the authorities, and the mother was interviewed by police. The boy said that Ray Bucky had hurt him. At the time, Ray was 25 years of age and had been working at the school for two years. So, after Peggy questioned Ray, she called the police, but the detective wasn't there. So, she went home and then the police arrived at her house. One of the policemen had his own child at the school. They had a search warrant and began searching the house. They then went to Virginia's house and searched her house as well. She had a box with cards which had all the names, addresses and phone numbers of the parents 
both past and present, which the police took. Ray was subsequently arrested, but his parents were able to pay the bail and he was released. The district attorney's office determined that there wasn't enough evidence to proceed with the case against Ray, so the bail money was refunded. The mother, Judy Johnson, made further reports to the police that her son said that Ray Bucky sodomized him while his head was in the toilet. But the reports got even more bizarre. Her son said Ray had worn a cape, a Santa Claus costume, and that he had been taken to a car wash and locked in a trunk. He also said teachers at the school had chopped up rabbits. After the police had seized Virginia's records of the parents, they sent out a letter to each of the 200 parents which read, Dear Parent, This department is conducting a criminal investigation involving child molestation. Ray Bucky, an employee of Virginia McMartin's preschool, was arrested on September the 7th, 1983 by this department. The following procedure is obviously an unpleasant one, but to protect the rights of your children, as well as the rights of the accused, this inquiry is necessary for a complete investigation. Records indicate that your child has been or is currently a student at this preschool. We are asking your assistance in this continuing investigation. Please question your child to see if he or she has been a witness to any crime or if he or she has been a victim. Our investigation indicates that possible criminal acts include oral sex, fondling of genitals, buttocks or chest area and sodomy, possibly committed under the pretense of taking the child's temperature. Also, photos may have been taken of children without their clothing. Any information from your child regarding having ever observed Ray Bucky to leave a classroom alone with a child during a nap period, or if they have ever observed Ray Bucky tie up a child, is important. Please complete the enclosed information form and return it to this department in the enclosed stamped envelope as soon as possible. We will contact you if circumstances dictate same. We ask you to keep this information strictly confidential because of the nature of the charges and the highly emotional effect it could have on our community. Please do not discuss this investigation with anyone outside your immediate family. Do not contact or discuss this investigation with Ray Bucky or any member of the accused defendant's family or employees connected with the McMartin Preschool. There is no evidence to indicate that the management of Virginia McMartin's Preschool had any knowledge of this situation and no detrimental information concerning the operation of the school has been discovered during this investigation for any criminal act. Your prompt attention to this matter and reply no later than September the 16th 1983 will be appreciated. Upon receiving the letter, parents were struck with panic and began taking their children out of the school. The McMartin family began getting death threats 
and were ultimately forced to close the school. The police sent the children for evaluation to a facility called the Children's Institute International where they were evaluated by the Sexual Abuse Diagnostic Centre. The director of the centre was a friend of the district attorney prosecutor. The children were interviewed and videotaped and then underwent physical examinations, which were done with an innovative diagnostic tool called the colposcope. This was a microscopic examination technique which allowed slide pictures to be taken of minute scarring caused by penetration. The examinations determined that the majority of the 400 children had been sexually abused. What resulted was the arrest of seven people, Virginia McMartin, Peggy and her son Ray, and Ray's sister, who was also named Peggy, and three other teachers at the preschool. They were indicted on a total of 115 counts of child abuse, which then rose to 321 charges. When the story broke in the media, it didn't take long for pandemonium to occur. Stories began circulating of satanic cults, blood drinking, ritual sexual abuse involving rape and sodomy, the slaughter of animals, and headlines read, Sexual House of Horrors and California's Nightmare Nursery. The district attorney made an announcement that millions of pornographic images had been taken of the children and that it was the biggest case of organised crime and child pornography in American history. The first stage of the court process was to conduct a preliminary hearing to determine if the case would go to trial. The court heard testimony from the centre that conducted the videotaped interviews and physical examinations of the children. The defence requested to see the tapes, but the prosecution denied the request. The defence argued that the tapes were crucial evidence in the case and that they should have the right to access any and all evidence. The judge agreed and the defence was able to view the tapes. What they saw was the woman who conducted the interviews using puppets and dolls with the children, but what emerged was that the children's stories were different each time they were interviewed. Other experts were called to view the tapes, and they determined the children were being asked leading and suggestive questions, and that the interviewers had an agenda. Some of the children could not even identify Ray, and there was no spontaneous revelations from the children about what happened. The interviewers kept prodding and prodding until they got the words they wanted from the children. Here is some of the children's testimony. They said they had been forced to drink blood, that they saw animals being killed, and that they were warned not to say anything. One boy said he was taken to a cemetery where they dug up coffins and watched the teachers hack up the dead bodies, and that the bodies had bled. There were also trips in hot air balloons and witches flying through the air. Another child said he and some children were taken to a house where there was a door in the floor and that there were lions under the floor. They were told the lions would get them if they told anyone. 
There were also stories of secret underground rooms in the school where the sexual abuse took place. Following this testimony, some of the parents went to the school and began digging in the lot next to the school for these reported underground tunnels. An archaeology firm was also hired by the DA, but no tunnels or underground rooms were ever found. So the children had been initially interviewed at the Sexual Abuse Centre and then further times throughout the preliminary hearings. What emerged were inconsistencies in their stories, as well as recanting what they had previously said. The children provided new information and the stories got more elaborate. As can be expected, there were large crowds outside the court while the hearings progressed over the weeks and months. People outside the court had signs saying, We believe the children. One man also gave a media interview where he said that they had been killing babies and cremating them and that they taught satanic ritual molestation to other preschools as part of an international child pornography ring. The sensational accounts given by the children was believed by many to have been influenced by two people who had met with the children and their parents. They had authored a book about a person's account of being involved in satanic ritual abuse. The book was eventually discredited, but many believed the authors had influenced the parents and the children to give the accounts of satanic rituals. The defence team presented its argument of the inconsistent and highly questionable testimony provided by the children, but the defence also provided evidence that the prosecutors had told police to withhold evidence that they didn't want the defence to have. One such piece of evidence was that Judy Johnson's son had not been able to identify Ray from photos shown to him. The defence also accused the prosecution of withholding the mental illness of Judy Johnson. She had been in hospital following a psychotic episode and had been diagnosed with schizophrenia. At its conclusion, the preliminary hearings became the longest in history, taking 20 months to complete. Each of the accused were offered leniency if they testified against each other, but they refused. It was concluded that there was insufficient evidence to take five of the accused to trial. However, Ray and his mother Peggy still had 65 counts against them, to which they pleaded not guilty. Peggy was released on $1 million bail, but bail was denied to Ray. And it was also interesting to note that one of the prosecutors resigned after the preliminary hearings, stating that he came to the conclusion that the abuse had not happened. So the trial commenced against Ray and Peggy, but before the trial even began, a very unexpected event occurred. Judy Johnson, the mother whose allegation had started the whole process, suddenly died from a condition associated with alcoholism. The doctor who had examined the children using the photographic method she developed demonstrated to the court how she used the method to determine the children had been molested. There were photos shown 
of the children's genitals and minute scars that she said showed the molestation. As well as the children testifying again, another witness at the trial was a man who had shared a prison cell with Ray. He testified that Ray had confessed to abusing the children. However, it came to light that the man had manufactured testimony in other cases against other inmates in order to gain favourable treatment. He subsequently confessed to perjury in those cases, but was then offered immunity to the perjury charges if he fabricated the story of Ray's confession. The trial lasted for three years, and then the jury took nine weeks to reach its verdict. Peggy was acquitted on all counts. Ray was acquitted on 52 out of 65 counts, and the remaining 13 counts had resulted in a hung jury. Ray was released on bail after being in jail for more than five years. So, with the accused found not guilty, one would think that that was the end of the story, but it was not to be. After six years and a cost of $6 million, the matter was not yet finalised. The prosecutors announced that they would continue to pursue the 13 counts against Ray that had been deadlocked. This would involve a retrial. The media coverage of the first trial showed that the prosecution's side was reported over the defence side at a ratio of 14 to 1. On a television program, the host asked a reporter, how deeply marked are these children? Will they ever recover from it? To which the reporter replied, psychologically, perhaps never. So the public opinion was so overwhelmingly against Ray and Peggy, it was vehemently believed that they were guilty. So the call for a retrial was welcomed. But there were also some who believed it was politically motivated, with various politicians harnessing public opinion in order to gain re-election. After Ray had been acquitted and before the second trial commenced, he gave an interview. He said, I was neither shy nor outgoing. I am just quiet. I'm better one-on-one than in a group. I think still waters run deep in the sense that I don't feel a need to tell everybody everything. Some people have said I'm shy with women, but that's not really true. I'm just hesitant to ask them out for dates because I fear the rejection. The district attorney tried to make a big deal out of my not having sex with a woman until I was 23. I went out with girls and I did stuff with them all the time because I grew up around girls. I'm a quiet person. Making sexual advances is just not a part of my makeup. I didn't see myself as attractive. My best attribute, though, was my humour. This notion of what makes a man is all mixed up in our society. What do you have to do? Go out and have a prostitute when you're 18, and then you're a man? Or do you have to attack girls by the third date? It's the morals I was brought up with. Sex is something very special, and you don't do it with somebody that you meet for the first time or when there's no emotion. I looked at the preschool and saw why my family was so involved with it and why they enjoyed it so much. It was a very happy, uplifting atmosphere to be in. I talked about the possibility of my working there, 
and they were overjoyed with the chance of my coming into the family business and making it a third generation business. The appeal for me had to do with the basic concept of children, that they're very positive and most are very happy. It is almost contagious, their happiness and zest for life. After I was at the preschool for a while, I saw that the parents and children liked me. They said how happy they were to have an adult male influence because their children didn't get enough at home. Judy Johnson contacted police to say her two-and-a-half-year-old son had a red anus and had been touched by a teacher at the school. He was examined by a doctor at the UCLA Medical Centre and determined that he had been sodomised. My family and I had some faith, some hope, that this would be resolved fairly quickly. I just didn't realise people were so stupid. I knew things were serious when I was arrested that day. It was scary. I had a little more faith in the people who were pushing this and figured they would use intelligence, common sense and sanity. We were worried about security because my mother was attacked by someone with scissors. Those were very scary situations. I couldn't believe these people were buying into these claims that they could be so inept not to know their own children. Real friends stood by us, but eventually it became so insane that they didn't want to speak out on our behalf because they were afraid for themselves. If you stood for us, you might be accused of something. We lost a cousin whose children went to the preschool and then went through the CII process. She got sucked into the whole parent uproar of this case and believed something happened. She stopped speaking to us, but I still had some part of me that said there cannot be that many stupid people who would not stop this before it went too far, but no one did. I had to deal with the prosecutors and watch them lie and cheat and try to destroy my life. I had to watch them get away with it. Most people are without conscience. I came to see that. The DA is going to keep this case going so that he can stand up on his soapbox and say, I'm a tough prosecutor. Look at me. I went after these people. He's not looking for a scapegoat. He's looking for a sacrificial lamb. He's going to sacrifice these parents and their kids to go through another traumatic trial. So the second trial got underway and as many expected, the children's stories changed again. The 13 counts were debated, but ultimately the jury was hung again on all counts. Although a definitive decision was not reached, they all favoured acquittal. The DA decided not to ask for a third trial of Ray Bucky. In total, the two trials had consumed $15 million and seven years of court time. Ray had been jailed for six years without ever being convicted of committing any crime. Not long after the acquittal, the preschool was demolished. Ray gave the following statement after the acquittal. I'm very relieved. I don't know if people can understand the feeling of waiting seven years for people who don't know you to decide your fate. They can never give us back the seven years they took from us. I've been through anger, I've gone through fear, and even a feeling of revenge for the people who have done this to my family. But I'm glad it's over. I would just like now to be left alone.
When asked what he would do now, he replied that he would probably have to go and get a job, saying, but I don't want to be a lawyer or a reporter. Ray's lawyer had this to say about how Ray conducted himself over the seven years. He was singly the most heroic client I've ever defended, not only because he was innocent, but he endured it with a quiet wisdom. Other preschools were also caught up in the drama, with eight schools having to close as a result of the panic. The hours and hours of videotaped testimony from the children, rather than helping to convict Ray, they actually had the opposite effect. The jury was able to see the coercive and suggestive techniques used to produce allegations against Ray and also the changing stories from the children. In the years since the trials, the questioning and interview techniques of the children have been examined, and it has been shown that the following suggestive techniques were used. Reinforcement, repetition of questions, co-witness information, inviting speculation, and introducing new information. So let's have a look at each of these. Reinforcement was seen when the interviewer praised or rewarded the children for saying what they wanted, such as, thanks for telling me, you're so smart. But they would also give the child negative feedback, such as, are you sure? Are you positive? If the child had something, the interviewer didn't want them to say. They would also say, let's see if you are smart enough to remember what happened. This would tell the child that praise or reward would come depending on what they said. The technique of repeating questions can create a form of negative feedback, which indicates to a child that their previous answers were not acceptable. Another suggestive technique is the co-witness information, which involves telling a child or adult witness that other witnesses had already said or observed something. Thus, the children are faced with the pressure to conform, to go along with other witnesses. Another technique is called inviting speculation, which involves asking a child to consider if a particular event may have or could have happened or to pretend that it had happened. This can reduce the accuracy of children's memories. Introducing new information is another technique which involves new post-event information, which can either be accurate or inaccurate, which was not previously mentioned by the child. For example, did he touch you on your private part? This was used in the case when children had not even mentioned anything about sexual touching. One of the children stated later as an adult that she absolutely knew she had been molested. When the questioning of the children came into dispute, she said the following. You're talking to a three-year-old. You have to lead them. They're not going to just say, oh, I was molested. My daughter doesn't just tell me what happened at school that day. I have to kind of prod her and encourage her. It's not easy to interview a three-year-old and for them just to be able to spit out what happened. So you have to lead them when you ask them questions. From my perspective, it happened. It's a no-brainer. 
I know I was molested. And here is an account of another child who was eight years old at the time. Kyle Sapp had testified against Ray, but some 20 years later, he admitted that nothing happened and that he had made up the whole story of the abuse. Here is his story. Kyle said that he was part of a blended family with nine children. His mother had divorced and Kyle was now living with a stepfather. And Kyle was the only child that he didn't father. Kyle always wanted to please him and for him to love him like the other children. He went to the McMartin Preschool with some of his siblings and had fond memories of his time there. But he had never even met Ray or even remembered him if he had. So here is his account of being questioned. He said, I remember them asking extremely uncomfortable questions about whether Ray touched me and about all the teachers and what they did. And I remember telling them nothing happened to me. I remember them almost giggling and laughing, saying, Oh, we know these things happen to you. Why don't you just go ahead and tell us? Use these dolls if you're scared. Anytime I would give them an answer that they didn't like, they would ask again and encourage me to give them the answer they were looking for. It was really obvious what they wanted. I know the types of language they used on me. Things like, I was smart, or I could help the other kids who were scared. I felt uncomfortable and a little ashamed that I was being dishonest. But at the same time, being the type of person I was, whatever my parents wanted me to do, I would do. And I thought they wanted me to help protect my little brother and sister who went to McMartin. My parents were very encouraging when I said that things happened. It was almost like saying things happened was going to help get these people in jail and stop them from what they were trying to do to kids. Also, there were so many kids saying all these things happened that you didn't want to be the one who said nothing did. You wouldn't be believed if you said that. I remember feeling like they didn't pick just anybody. They picked me because I had a good memory of what they wanted and they could rely on me to do a good job. I don't think they thought I was telling the truth, just that I was telling the same stories consistently, doing what needed to be done to get these teachers judged guilty. I felt special, important. The lawyers had all my stories written down and knew exactly what I had said before, so I knew I would have to say those exact things again and not have anything be different, otherwise they would know I was lying. I put a lot of pressure on myself. At night in bed, I would think hard about things I had said in the past and try to repeat only the things I knew I had said before. But the lying really bothered me. One particular night stands out in my mind. I was maybe 10 years old and I tried to tell my mum that nothing had happened. I lay on the bed crying hysterically. I wanted to get it off my chest to tell her the truth. My mother kept asking me to please tell her what was the matter. I said she would never believe me. She persisted. I promise I'll believe you. I love you so much. Tell me what's bothering you. This went on for a long time. I told her she wouldn't believe me and she kept assuring me that she would. I remember finally telling her nothing happened. Nothing ever happened to me at that school. But she didn't believe me. 
my family has not seen the movies or read the books questioning the prosecution. It's like skeletons in a closet that you just don't want to take back out. I'm the only one who ever brings the topic up and who admits nothing ever happened to me. I've said I lied about everything, but I've never gotten a real response for my mother and stepfather. It seems really strange seeing their reaction to the fact that nothing happened to me. If I had gone my whole life thinking my child was molested, I would be elated to find out that he or she wasn't. I'd like to think learning that your child was not molested would supersede anything. After all, all you have is the next day. It would be a shame to live the rest of your life thinking molestation had happened when you could think it didn't. McMartin is something negative in my life, and I'm trying to make it a positive. I've got two little kids I love dearly. They've changed the priorities in my life. My goal is to raise them as best that I can and try to lead by example. I want to be totally honest with them, to say, this is something that happened to me. I did something dishonest. Then at some point, I was able to be honest about it. I want my children to be able to come to me like I wish that I could have with my parents. Kyle wanted to get in touch with Ray and his sister but they declined, saying that they didn't need apologies from the children, that they didn't blame them, but that they wanted apologies from the police, social workers, therapists, prosecutors, doctors and parents. Kyle's mother didn't agree with his decision to tell his story. So, what happened to everyone involved in this case? Ray stepped out of the public light, not wishing to give any interviews, which, under the circumstances, was totally understandable. But after his experience with the judicial system, it came as a surprise to me to hear that he went to law school, even though he said he didn't want to be a lawyer. He also changed his name and moved, and was known to have got married and had a son. Virginia and her granddaughter Peggy sued the parent of one child for slander in 1991, but the plaintiffs were only awarded $1 each. Are you absolutely joking? Virginia died at the age of 88, about five years after the second trial, after suffering a series of strokes. Ray's mother died in the year 2000 at the age of 74, about 10 years after the trial. Ray's sister had been a high school special education teacher and had helped at her grandmother's preschool. She had lost her job after the allegations surfaced, but after having the charges dismissed, she applied to have her teaching credentials reinstated, which was initially denied. However, the decision was later overturned, and she resumed her teaching career. So, here are my thoughts about this whole story. The media coverage was very interesting, in that one reporter who was very prominent in the case was a well-known and award-winning reporter. So it seems that his credentials made people believe that what was happening must have been true. And it also emerged that he was in a relationship with the woman who had done the initial videotaping of the children. There is footage of the reporter interviewing the examiner on his TV news show. And this happened a number of times before the court proceedings even began. 
So it was seen as a form of propaganda which resulted in a presumption of guilt. And the other bizarre aspect was that as the first trial was in progress, it came to light that the prosecutors themselves had not even viewed the videotapes. And even more shockingly, the woman did not have the required qualifications necessary to conduct such interviews with the children. So the prosecution lawyers were using this woman's testimony, which she wasn't even qualified to provide. And also the taping of the sexual abuse victims had never been done before. So I really think that this woman was hoping to be a pioneer in the field and receive accolades as a result. I absolutely loathe politics, and this was another case where it was used. A man who was running for district attorney used the case to bolster his public opinion, and this is used as a technique where candidates will show themselves to be supporting a particular public cause. In this case, he promoted himself as the champion for children who had been sexually abused. And the so-called millions of pornographic images of the children were never found. So when the district attorney makes this announcement, you can't blame people for believing it, but it was an outright lie. In all the years, absolutely nothing was found. It just became such a witch hunt, which snowballed out of control. Even the defence lawyers were harassed for defending the so-called paedophiles. The case comes down to satanic panic, but I can understand that parents love their children so much, so the thought that they could be abused activates their parental instincts. But looking at it rationally, when the kids talk about lions under floors, how can you think of it in any other way than children's imaginations? Perhaps that first boy had been abused, but it wasn't Ray. Maybe it was someone else outside of the school. In my mind, Ray and the others involved were all victims, but so were the children. As they grew up, their parents continued to believe that they were molested, and so of course the children were convinced as well. So this episode continued on with the theme of the previous episode from Kosovo of mass hysteria. I also covered another case similar to this one, which occurred at a daycare centre in New Zealand. The man at the centre of that case also was a young man who spent the rest of his life trying to clear his name. And that was episode 51 called Daddy Daycare, if you'd like to listen to that one too. I really admire Ray so much and I really hope that he can spend the rest of his life in peace. And now let's preview the next episode. It's called Having a Bad Day. The student was late coming to school. Why? And to end this episode, I will leave you with this quote, which sums up how Ray handled the whole situation. A clear conscience laughs at false accusations. Bye for now, and remember to be a good apple. <laughs>